delighted to say that I'm joined on Football CFB by the former managing director of the EFL, known to so many of us in Scotland as the chief executive of the Scottish Football Association, Stuart Regan. First of all, Stuart, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Um, the first few weeks were, were okay. Um, as time's gone on, I've started to become a little bit more stir-crazy, probably like most people. Uh, but um, I've tried to get into a routine. I'm trying to do my work on a morning. I'm trying to do a bit of exercise on an afternoon. I'm trying to keep on top of jobs around the house and watch a bit of TV on an evening. I'm just trying to keep this like daily routine. But it is getting, uh, it is getting a bit tough now. I'll be glad when we can finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. Something I want to ask you about and talk to you about, Stuart, is what you're up to now, because as I say, in Scotland, we know you as being involved with the Scottish Football Association. You've since left the Scottish Football Association, but am I right in saying you're doing a lot of work now with UEFA and FIFA as well? I am, yeah. So back in um, April 2018, um, I set up a company called Ascend Global Consulting Business. Uh, so it's my, my company, and <clears throat> I've taken on a number of clients um, my two biggest clients at the moment are UEFA and FIFA, which are quite nice clients to have uh, on your um, on your your roster. Um, majority of the work is with UEFA through a program called UEFA Assist, which is like an outreach program for football federations around the world, uh, providing capacity building, educational uh, support, mentoring, um, and then there's a whole series of other areas like um, youth tournaments. Um, competitions obviously and, and some infrastructure, some support with equipment and facilities. So I'm kind of one of the, the lead uh, consultants for UEFA and I've spent quite a lot of time uh, last year and the year before in, in Africa, in, um, in Asia, um, Central America and the Caribbean. So it's actually quite nice. I'm doing an awful lot of traveling um, or I was until the 23rd of March. Um, and <clears throat> with FIFA, it's more on the technical side. So FIFA are developing programs to try and strengthen the relationship between the CEO of a football association and the technical director who's responsible for implementing football plans and football programs. So I'm, I'm helping them build those programs and develop the relationship so that that um, that improves at, uh, in football associations around the world. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm doing that. Uh, I've got a few other non-exec roles. I'm non-exec chair of a marketing agency called Banana Kick uh, in Yorkshire, who are very big in sport, uh, but also a lot of experiential marketing. So they do major events, a um, little bit of branding, a little bit of creative and, and design. Um, and I've just agreed to become a non-exec of a, of a data company who are looking to move into sports data and provide information to clubs, football agencies, um, based on player data during a game and how it could influence the player's transfer value uh, by the contribution they make during the game, not just in um, conversions, goals, assists, whatever, but also what role they play in the team. And it uses um, quite sophisticated technology uh, neural network technology, which is way over my head, um, and artificial artificial intelligence. So we have some very, very bright people uh, working within the company. And the plan is um, that when the company finally comes to market, which is not too far away, that we'll be able to offer a, a really um, 
interesting service to football clubs and um, and bodies around the world. So yeah, bit been busy. Sounds sounds very exciting. You're involved in a whole host of stuff there. Um, what I'm interested to talk about from what you've said there has been involved in Africa, the Caribbean, the Far East as well. Being involved in British football with the EFL and in Scotland more generally as well. Um, what's it been like working in those different regions and in terms of your expertise having been involved in our game over here in the UK, what have you noticed that maybe they're not quite, they've not quite got yet that you can help them deliver? Yeah, well, I, I guess um, sport, irrespective of which sport it is, whether it's cricket, which I've worked in, football, rugby, basketball, they're all different games, but the challenges are identical. You know, they are all trying to appeal with their product to a particular group of fans or, or customers, if you like. They're all trying to attract sponsors. They're all trying to manage clubs, leagues. Um, they have to provide a degree of governance of the game, um, rules, regulations, and so on. So no matter where you go and no matter which sport you're working in, it's actually very, very similar. And then when you compare sport to business, there are so many kind of learnings for sport from business and vice versa, actually, where business can learn from sport. So having worked for 17 years in the drinks industry with, um, with Bass Brewers, who actually used to own Tenant Caledonian in Scotland, uh, I've got a lot of understanding of the kind of corporate side um, of, of um of the world if you like and also the sporting side through a lot of different sports and when you put those things together it's great to see how you can help football federations around the world in in developing countries everything from strategic planning um, to governance which covers areas like organizational structure um, rules and regulations uh, how decisions are made uh, how controls are put in place to make sure that spending is managed and costs are kept under control you know how revenue is generated from sponsors you know commercial uh, areas like marketing merchandising um advertising and so on so there's a there's a lot of of overlaps and probably the the biggest one is is people because whether it's business or sport it's all about people staff players you know coaches uh, boards of directors and getting the best out of those people, putting in processes to make sure you can manage their performance, um, understand what their objectives are, measuring progress. So loads of different areas, but you know, really, really interesting, really exciting stuff. In terms of, you talked there about the importance of people and that leads me on to my next question because People are important whether you're representing a club, a league, or a national body. What, what are the differences between working at an organisation like the EFL and then a national organisation like the SFA? Now, I'm not asking for specifics there. I'm just interested to know the, the real differences and the similarities both roles had. Yeah, well, the, the EFL, like the, um, the Scottish Professional Football League, is, um, is a league body. So it's um, made up of a number of clubs who are essentially members of the league. And in the case of the EFL, it's 70, 72 clubs or 71 at the moment because Bury are no longer a member of the, the Football League. Um, and those clubs are divided into three divisions. And their sole purpose is to 
generate or the, the sole purpose of the EFL is to generate revenue for the good of the members um, and to run competitions so that they can play matches and compete against each other for cups, for league titles and in some cases for European places, um, particularly when you have a, a, um, a national cup competition. You know, it was the FA Cup in the case of the EFA, in, in the case of England, and it wasn't the League Cup. But you get you get the idea. The SPFL is exactly the same. It's there to raise money. It's there to bring in TV uh, revenue, sponsorship revenue, revenue from anything else, whether it be um, you know advertising or whether it be any kind of marketing campaigns, and then it shares that money out across the members. So my role back in 2003 to 2005 was as managing director of what is now the championship. At the time, it was the, the first division, it was called. And um, the clubs in that division decided that they wanted somebody to lead that division and try and grow its revenue, but also to view the 24 clubs that were in the division as being one unit and that the idea or the vision was that the whole would be greater than the sum of the parts. So by working together, they could achieve much more. So I used to bring the commercial directors together, but also the CEOs and the commercial directors, we would talk about how could we share um, commercial inventory? How could we work together so that we could sell rights to sponsors for the good of the championship as it became um, first division at the time. So one of the first uh, brands that we brought on was Wix, the DIY company. And you know, I, I kind of delivered that uh, sponsorship for them, literally from making the first call to negotiating the contract to, to working out a rights package with each club. And then each club selling those rights into like a pool which then was provided to the sponsor. So there was a commercial benefit, but there were also some other business benefits. Um, you know, buying, for example, um, every club buys the same type of stuff, whether it be grass seed, whether it be paper clips, whether it be mobile phone contracts. So we looked at how we could buy as 24 clubs rather than every club having its own individual contract with a supplier. And obviously, the, the more you buy, the more discount that you can get. So some of those kinds of business procurement principles were of value to, uh, to the championship. Um, and obviously, the, the conversion to the championship was another marketing strategy. So when we rebranded, we felt that the championship was a much more aspirational brand than the first division. The first division implied you were just one of a number of different leagues, first division, second division, third division, fourth division, and, and so on. The championship was there as a sort of a viable league with some really big clubs. So at the time, you had the likes of Sunderland, Derby County, Coventry City, Nottingham Forest, Middlesbrough, West Brom, Stoke City. All of those clubs were in and around. And some of those clubs were clubs that had operated at the highest levels, won European titles in the case of, of Nottingham Forest, um, but they'd fallen on sort of harder times and they were desperately trying to get out of that league back into the Premiership. 
So we, we created um, um, a marketing campaign that we called Everything to Play For, and we positioned the championship as the league that offered the richest game on earth. And at the time, the championship playoff final at the end of the season, um, you were playing one match, 90 minutes, and at the time it was for something like 30 or 40 million pounds. Now it's much more than that, of course, it's about 150 million. But then that one game decided whether you went up into the Premier League or not. So we marketed the championship playoff final as the richest game on earth. And that actually generated a huge amount of interest. The TV audience for that game alone was, was phenomenal. And for the playoffs, it was, it was huge. So league is about commercial and revenue generation, managing competitions. When you're in the governing body, yes, there's a commercial aspect to that, but there's also a um, rules and regulatory um, side to the, the game as well. And also you're responsible for every type of football from grassroots right the way through to the national team. So my, my management team at the Scottish FA, uh, I think it was eight, eight strong eventually. It was 12, but I, I reduced that to, to eight. And there was a football side to my line report. So I had the national team coach, Gordon Strachan, as was. It was Craig Levine when I first went into the job. Um, and then uh, there was a performance director role and a football development director role. So those three roles were responsible for all aspects of football. But you then had a business um, set of responsibilities as well. So I had a commercial director, I had um, a director of governance and regulation, and then a number of areas like HR, legal, and so on and so forth. And then there was some kind of um, football administration type areas like refereeing, like club licensing and so on. But it's a very, it's a very different focus. And people sometimes think that the, the role of both organisations is the same. You know, it's just about being another governing body. The SPFL and the SFA are just two governing bodies. They get called that, but the league is all about generating commercial revenue and organising competitions. The Football Association is about running the national team, grassroots and regulating the game. And they are very, very different responsibilities. So hopefully that gives you a bit of clarity. It certainly does give me clarity, absolutely. And this is, again, a general question, but there's been lots of debate in football whether it would make sense for a national body in the league to merge so that you've got one body overseeing everything. In your personal opinion, is that something that's realistic or do you feel that having the separate responsibilities is the, the most sensible approach? Because in most divisions, or especially in the UK, as you know, it is a separate approach. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting debate. And, you know, when I go around the world and visit some of the 211 football associations that are actually out there, usually they, they fall into three camps. There are the really well-developed football associations mainly the European football associations and perhaps some of the South American uh, associations as well. Um, you then have a kind of middle group who are trying to become mature, 
trying to kind of reach that level. And then you have really underdeveloped associations where there is no professional football, there is just grassroots and amateur football. And where you have the, the bottom group, the kind of amateur and grassroots, the Football Federation runs everything. The FA runs everything. It runs all the leagues and it runs all of the programmes for grassroots and it manages all aspects of football. And then you have this kind of middle group and there are a number of football associations around the world who are still running the league even though you might think that they are quite well developed. I mean, it's only, I think, a couple of years, maybe a little bit longer, since the Northern Irish uh, Football Association released control of the Danske Bank um, Premier League in Northern Ireland. That was run and managed exclusively under the FA uh, until a short time ago. And there are benefits for that. Obviously, decision-making, you know, control, commercial revenue, uh, rules and regulations, lack of conflict, lack of infighting. Um, you know, everything's a lot smoother when you have a situation like that. But once you get to be a developed football association, really you run into the conflict of financial distribution because the role of a, a well-developed league is to bring in money and, it, and that money is for, in their opinion, those clubs that are in that league, as opposed to sharing it out across the entire game. So when there is a television deal to be done, um, or a cup competition and a sponsorship, the league wants that money to come in for a very small group of, of shareholders in the league. And obviously, if it came into the FA, there would be more mouths to feed. So if you take probably um, the, the best example or the most extreme example, the Premier League in England, which has got now a multi-billion pound turnover, the benefit of that revenue is actually for 20 clubs alone. And it allows those 20 clubs to buy the biggest names around the world, the biggest players. It allows them to invest in their infrastructure and their stadiums so that they have the best the biggest, the most impressive um, stadia, the most impressive websites, the best fan engagement programs, the best staff being paid the highest salaries, the best coaches being paid the highest salaries. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's, you know, classed as the best league in the world. And that's because it controls its own revenue, it manages its own decisions, and it kind of works at arm's length from, from the FA. And, you know, I guess that's where Scotland believes it is that you know the SPFL wants to be master of, of its own destiny and it wants to control its own revenue and it wants to share that amongst a small number of clubs. In this case, um, you know, 12 at the top who get you know a, a higher payout than the other 30 in the three divisions below. Um, so that's how it works, and hopefully that gives you a better understanding of how the the, the, the two bodies operate. But you've talked there about how the bodies operate in Scottish football. To bring it up to the to the present day, I'm interested to get your opinion because you've worked in Scottish football on the inside. At the moment, there's lots of debate over the pyramid structure in Scottish football. Um, this is a unique time, as we all know. Um, this was unforeseen 
we thought we'd finish the seasons, playoffs, etc. would happen as normal. What's your personal opinion, Stuart, when it comes to Broader Rangers and Kelty Hearts? Because those clubs won their respective divisions, which ordinarily would allow them to play each other. And then mm. go at playing the, the bottom team in the SPFL. It looks as if that's not going to happen now. What's your thoughts on that? And do you think that's something that should hopefully change? Yeah, I mean, to answer that, you probably need to go back maybe six or seven years to when the pyramid was first introduced into Scottish football. And it came about as a, at the time when the SPL merged with the SFL to create what we now know as the SPFL. And one of the principles that was put on the table and supported by myself as CEO of the Scottish FA was that the bottom of the Football League, i.e. the bottom of League Two, had to be opened up to allow ambitious clubs to come through and have somewhere to go. Prior to that, it was a glass ceiling and there was no incentive for any team and at the time, there were teams like Spartans who were doing some fantastic work, still do some fantastic work. But their, their team, which was kind of a semi-professional team, it just kept hitting the ceiling. There was, there was nowhere for it to go. Likewise, the Highland League, a very strong, competitive league, but very local, nowhere for the winners to go. So the principle was established that there would be a playoff between the winners of the Highland and the winners of a new league that we created from the east of Scotland and the south of Scotland League, which we called the Lowland League, the winners would play off and that, that winner would then play Club 42 for the right to succeed. Now, at the time, there was a lot of doubters who said the quality below League 2 was very poor, that there was no way that clubs would make it. Um, we had a lot of kickback from the Scottish Junior FA who didn't want to be involved initially because they felt the quality was a lot lower than the junior level of football um, and that it wouldn't succeed. But, you know, we were determined to try and allow ambitious clubs to come through Scottish football and rise to the top. And the vision that, that I promoted at the time was a French team called Auxerre that you might have heard of. Auxerre were many years ago, probably about maybe 15 years ago, were a team playing on the park in France. They were an amateur team. They got their act together. They got wealthy backing and they worked their way right the way through and eventually ended up playing in the Champions League. And I said at one of the meetings of the Pyramid Working Group, wouldn't it be great if there was a Scottish team that could have the, the vision to go all the way. And, you know, when you now look at Cove Rangers and Edinburgh City, they are two standout clubs in League Two. And it shows that the quality below League Two is there. And, you know, Kelty Hearts and Brora, two very, very good clubs. I would add to that clubs like, um, you know, BSC Glasgow, East Kilbride, um, you know, up in, in Scotland, you, you know, you've got a number of, of teams that have been there or thereabouts in the Highland League competing for, for some time to, to get the right to, to go up. And, you know, the, um, the other team that's just been founded recently, um, it was Edu Sport, it's now Caledonian Braves. You know, that gives, a, um, a, you know, the Lowland League gives a, a team like Caledonian Braves 
something to play for. It gives them a vision and, and, and somewhere to go. So when the pyramid was in place, I, I felt really proud for Scottish football that it had actually woken up and realised that it needed to do something for these teams. So when I read in the papers about how the whole um, end of the season has been handled in Scotland, I feel really disappointed for the likes of Kelty and Brora because they've lost the opportunity to play off against, at the moment, Brecon City for the chance to go into League Two. And, you know, you would, you would have probably fancied one of the teams from the Highland or Lowland against Brecon City. And, you know, because of manual intervention in the end of the season and manual intervention into relegation and promotion, those teams have lost out. And, you know, I feel personally that Brecon City have been dealt with differently to the likes of Stranra and Partick Thistle and Hearts simply because of circumstances and you know I, I do I do understand the frustration of of Kelty and Brora and personally if it if if I'd have had an input into it I might have liked to have seen League Two expand to 12 teams for one season I'd have I wouldn't have relegated Brecon because you know that would have actually uh, avoided a playoff but I would have brought both Kelty and Brora into that division and actually relegated maybe two teams or three teams next season to actually allow the process to, to, to get back to normal. So I think a bit of innovation or a bit of creativity might have provided a better outcome than what we've seen. I completely agree. That's my preference, I think. As you've said, the fact Hearts look as if they're relegated, you've definitely got the relegations of Partick and Stranraer. As you say, if you are a fan of Kelty or Barora, and I suppose even fans of Brecon will be sitting there thinking it's like a lottery win in the sense that if they were in League One and they finished bottom, they'd definitely be down to League Two. So it's an interesting one and I'm sure will continue to develop. In terms of, yeah, I mean, you know, when one of the, the one of the phrases I've used in a, a couple of interviews recently has been the phrase self-interest, and you know, unfortunately, because of how football is structured and how the league is governed, you have clubs governing um, the, the league and the divisions and the the structures and processes that are in place. Now, if you can play a season to its conclusion. That's the best way to manage the situation. If you, if you create a kind of an arbitrary position where you decide you're going to call the season, what it, what it then means is that you have to have human intervention by some clubs into the future of other clubs. So some clubs are deciding what happens to another club. The minute that happens, then relationships are shot to pieces. And unfortunately, that's what's happened in Scotland. And it's all of their own making. You know, they've, they've created a situation because of financial pressure where they've had to call the league, but they've not yet called the Premiership. They've only called the Championship, League One and League Two. And you think, OK, well, you know, clubs are being relegated and other clubs are being promoted. But, you know, we've just identified that Brecon are being dealt with slightly differently to Partick and Stranra just because of circumstances and other teams who might have felt 
that they had a chance of promotion because they've got games to play, points to play for. Someone else has decided, no, we're not going to do that. We're actually going to promote the team that's sitting in that place right now. And I just think that was a recipe for disaster. It was a car crash waiting to happen. And, you know, it's now there. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks in Scotland is a pressure cooker of frustration turning into fallouts between clubs, fallouts between chairmen, requests for independent investigations, all because of dissatisfaction over that human intervention. And about two months ago, right back at the start of this whole coronavirus, I said that the best solution, in my opinion, would be to play out the league and start it when, when it's safe. You know, there is nothing to stop the league starting again in July, even in August or September, in my opinion. Play it out, get it concluded, have a short gap, and then maybe start the season again. You might need to make a few changes, remove some cup games, maybe even radically go to one match, home or away. Play that one match, you know, um, at a neutral venue, perhaps. So all teams are treated the same and get to a, an outcome where there is no human intervention and where there's no criticism that one club has been treated differently to another. And, you know, for me, it's about creative leadership, not just dealing with things by human intervention. That's a fascinating insight. Thank you very much for that, Stuart. And what I want to, to talk about next is I've spoken to Adrian Bevington before, who close friend of mine now and, and obviously was in charge for a time at the, the FA in terms of communications, etc. Now, I'm not wanting you to talk about names in particular here, but what are the challenges when you're in charge of a, an association when it comes to recruiting a new manager, whether for the men's national team, the female national team or one of the underage groups? Um, I think that it's like any other recruitment process. You know, you are looking to try and get the best person for the job. Um, um, but, you know, the best person for the job might not be available because of finance, um, because of an existing contract, because of a commitment that they've made to uh, another, another party, another club or another federation. So you can only work with the resources that are available at your disposal. So, you know, you, you create a, a job description, you create a person profile, you then go and try and find all of the candidates that fit that person profile, and you then try and whittle them down based on their availability and based on your ability to recruit them, given the funding and the finances that you have. And when you have your shortlist, you then you know, check it against their, their performance as managers in previous jobs, you know, their, their results, you know, their stats. Um, and if they still stack up, you try and go after your, your favoured candidate um, and try and get to a position where you can recruit the person you want for that job. You know, that's how it, how it works in, in theory. In practice, you know, there's a lot of... Um, Stuff goes on behind the scenes, a lot of, um, a lot of toing and froing. Sometimes football agents get involved. You know, you have dis discussions around um, finance, around contractual requirements, around location, around job content. 
but you know you you end up hopefully in a place where you can appoint the person you want the next question i've got for you Stuart, again linked to your time in scotland and it's it's about the national team now you were in charge at the SFA's chief executive. The, club, the team didn't get to a major tournament. You're not the first chief executive that that's happened to, and you won't be the last. This has been shown. It's been 22 years, as you know, since we got to a major tournament. But in terms of yourself now from the outside looking in, what do you think of the national team? And when the Euros are obviously going to be next year, we hope, um, when those qualifiers come around, the semi-final against Israel, potentially, touch wood if we get to the final against either Serbia or Norway. How do you think the national team are going to get on and do you think you can see that there's a pathway for young players in the nation to develop? Well, let, let me pull you up first of all, Callum, on what you've just said there. You said that in my time, the national team hasn't reached a major final. I presume you're talking about the men's national team because the women's national team qualified for their first ever European Championship um, through Anna Signiel, but then Shelley Kerr led the team uh, in Holland. Um, and then she went on again to qualify for their first ever World Cup in 2018. So um, there'll be many in Scotland who will be thinking, what's Callum saying that the national team hasn't actually arrived at a major tournament? So um, if we put that to one side and talk about the men's game, you're absolutely right. It was the um, it was the Bermuda Triangle for us to try and actually get the national team to a major tournament. And, you know, for a, a few minutes when we were sat um, at Hampden Park, when Lee Griffiths scored those two free kicks, uh, we were winning 2-1 against England and thinking, actually, this is looking good. Um, and then going away to Slovenia, needing to win going 1-0 up and, and trying to hold on. You know, for a few moments, there was a glimmer that we might make either the, the finals or certainly the playoffs. And then to have it cruelly snatched away, it was pretty, pretty heartbreaking. And yeah, it was the one thing that I would love to have seen happen in my uh, time as CEO of the Scottish, uh, Scottish FA. But, you know, that said, um, it will happen at some point down the line. You know, I look at the players coming through now there are some amazing young talents who've come through the performance system, who've come through performance schools. Many of the young players now playing in the English Premiership and in the Championship and in the Scottish Premier League are still in their early or mid-20s and they're playing at a very, very high level. You know, Scott McTominay, Kieran Tierney, John McGinn, you know, just to, to, to name just a few. Billy Gilmore making his debut at Chelsea. You know, there are so many talented players at Scotland's disposal. It won't be long, in my opinion, before the team will qualify. And I do hope that UEFA will keep the Nations League in place and not scrap it before, you know, the, the tournament has been concluded so that Scotland gets a chance to play the playoffs and to see whether it does have a chance of going through as a wild card. Uh, into um, what will be Euro 2020 played in 2021. It's a unique circumstance and I want to clarify as I say that question in terms of the women's national team. I went to their uh, friendly against Jamaica before they went to the World Cup. A thoroughly yeah. entertaining game, a great turnout as well which was was absolutely fantastic and to ask the question on the, the, the women's national team, just how proud are you of 
the work that went in there during your time and the job that Shelley Care has already done and is continuing to do? Um, I mean, it, it gave me huge satisfaction um, to see the progress that the women's team uh, made under Anna Signal, because let's not forget, she had about 10 years of putting in the, the basics, putting in the programs, getting the girls who were amateurs at the time to train five days a week, much more than the, the men's kind of amateur game was, was doing at the time, and building a squad that were capable of, of actually competing at the highest level. You had Glasgow City, who, as a, an amateur team, you know, reached the last 16 of the Women's Champions League. I mean, that's a fairy story on its own, and they've done it time after time. So then to see players move into teams like Manchester City, Liverpool, um, Arsenal, um, now Manchester United, you've got Scottish girls playing at the very highest level for some of the biggest teams in the world. And it's great to look at at girls like Caroline Weir, Erin Cuthbert, um, and see the progress that they're making. I think it's fantastic for, for Scottish football to see the women's team doing so well. And they are now true role models for other girls coming through to see that they can actually make a living out of playing football, something that you would have thought impossible only 10 years ago. Absolutely. And We've talked in this interview so far, Stuart, about what you're up to now. We talked about your background with the EFL, working in Scottish football, which was, again, something that is, is always an adventure, regardless of who's in the hot seat, as you know. I want to finish by asking you a very general and broad question. What do you think, from your expertise of working in football, that the state of play will be in football when we return, whenever that is? Um, yeah, it's, uh, I'd love to have a, a crystal ball and to be able to predict what, what's going to happen. But um, I, I would probably say that there's a couple of phases that we're going to go through. I think the first phase is going to be really tough. Um, there's going to be this phase of returning to football, but in a safe way, with social distancing, with... Um, controls in place to make sure both players and coaches and even when games are released from being played behind closed doors and you're allowed to have a crowd again I suspect that the crowds might be restricted um, just to keep some degree of, of safety net in place now that period is going to be really tough financially the costs are still going to be there for players staff salaries, overheads to run the stadium, costs to put the games on, but nevertheless, a reduced income. And you might be aware that Scotland is the most reliant of any of the 55 European football federations on gate receipts. Yeah. So if, if gate receipts fall, Scotland catches the biggest cold of anybody. So phase one for me is going to be really tight. It's going to need some strong leadership in managing the business side of football to keep the clubs afloat and keep them on the tracks. And then the longer term, I think hopefully we'll start to get back to some degree of normality. Now in Scotland, there's a big job to do because of the fallout that has gone on between the clubs, particularly at the highest level. Um, when you have relationships being damaged to the extent that they've been damaged now, 
some some might say it's going to be really impossible to reconcile those differences and i would hope that the leadership of the spfl chairman chief executive work their socks off to actually get the chairman and chief execs of clubs back together again as quickly as possible and try and actually reconcile any differences because if those relationships are not fixed then you know you're not going to have the whole being greater than the sum of the parts because the whole will be weakened by whoever chooses not to collaborate with with everyone else so those relationships are crucial if the league is going to return to some degree of normality and the television contracts and the sponsorship contracts can be protected. As you say, it's an incredible challenge that in Scotland, because of the, the gate receipts and how many people attend games um, per capita is just unbelievable. So it'll be interesting to see how not only the Scottish game goes about recovering and, and trying to go on an upward trajectory again in the years to come, but also football more generally. I just really want to say, Stuart, thank you so much for agreeing to come on CFB. It's been a pleasure. Your expertise in terms of running a league and also running a national association is something I've not had to date. So I really appreciate your time and your insight. Great. It's been a pleasure, Callum. And uh, good luck with, uh, with the podcast. You're doing a great job and keep up the good work. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song